Hello and welcome to another episode of Dr. Dark After Dark. We're up to number seven and as I often do I did a poll on Twitter seeing if people were interested in me doing a series on really physics, cosmology, things like quantum mechanics, relativity, string theory, big bang, black holes, all these types of cool stuff. And pretty over overwhelmingly people said yes, that's interesting. Uh, over 80% of people. Um, and um, I think about 15% thought they would listen with an open mind and only a few percent were not interested. So for those people, this isn't for you. So look, this is a vast, vast subject. And for those that wonder why I'm Dr. Dark, I have a PhD in superconductors. Uh, not a th It wasn't a theoretical PhD, it was very um, practical. I made superconductors, so I was in the material science department, but you know, it's kind of a very huge overlaps of physics. Um, and I did a lot of the uh, maths and things behind what we're going to talk about. But we're not going to get into maths in this. This is all going to be very conceptual. Uh, look, it's a vast subject. I don't know how many episodes this is going to take. We're just going to start and I'm just going to kind of think through things like length scales and what has happened over time and the key people, key experiments, um, and see where we get. But this first episode, I wanted to talk about quantum mechanics and basically small stuff. So I'm not going to be talking about things like uh, relativity in detail. That's more big stuff. But of course, one the biggest question in physics is how these come together. So um, it's a really, well, both quantum mechanics and relativity uh, started to come together in the uh, early 20th century. And as I said, one of the biggest questions in physics is how to unify the two, which we have not done, just to be clear. Made massive progress in, in each field, but there's not a unification uh, that has any experimental evidence that it works. But having said that, the experiments we would need to test it right now would have to be the size of our galaxy. So a little out of our reach. So anyway, we're going to focus on the quantum mechanics side, and we're going to start by thinking about what is small? So let's think about lengths. So first of all, we're going to start with a meter, which is about the size of a human. Well, maybe my six-year-old or even the four-year-old or whatever is about a meter. But, you know, roughly when we're thinking of orders of magnitude, you know, uh, most humans are of the order of a meter. They're certainly not 0.1 meter and they're not 10 meters. So we get the scale of meters. It's really the scale we live on. So now let's go a thousand times smaller. So that's a millimeter. So that's the smallest divide on a ruler, if you have a metric ruler. <laughs> I don't think many people are in inches these days. Uh, maybe some people in the UK. And so that's really the smallest distance that you're ever going to kind of, with a pencil measure, you know, um, you can kind of see it with your eyes. But any small, you can't see a tenth of a millimeter. Now let's go a thousand times smaller still. So this is to a micrometer or a micron. Uh, so this is 10 to the minus six meters. So this is the size of a large virus. Actually, a coronavirus is about this size uh, or of a small bacteria, roughly a micron. Uh, this is uh, much thinner, about 50 times thinner than the human hair, which is about 50 microns. Now, all of this is still very macro when we're talking about quantum mechanics, but this is still very the big. We're, we've not got small. 
All right, so now let's go down another thousand times smaller to a nanometer. This is 10 to the minus nine meters. This is the size of basically your DNA, so your genes. Um, G-E-N-E-S, not what you wear. So, uh, and it, because this is, the, this is many atoms together. And if we go 10 times smaller still to 10 to the minus 10, which is often called an angstrom, um, that this is a, the size, so 10 to the minus 10 meters is the size of a, a large atom. Um, and um, so, you know, like uranium, something like that. And if we go uh, basically, um, yeah, even smaller still, you're going to, uh, roughly 10 times smaller still, you're going to get to about the size of a hydrogen atom. Um, now, We'll talk about it more later, but let's remember that an atom, even though it's 10 to the minus 10, let's say meters across, it's almost all empty space. It, it's not a brilliant way of thinking about it. It's not really, it's not like a sun in the middle, which is the nucleus, and electrons whizzing around the outside, which are planets. It's really not like that. It's much more like having a tiny black hole in the middle, the nucleus, which is teeny tiny. Uh, and yes, the planets whizzing around like electrons, except the electrons aren't really point-like particles that was around. They form what's really uh, called a, a cloud of electrons that is kind of um, surrounding the nucleus. And the electron is everywhere at once until you actually measure where it is or indeed force it to, um, to, to ionize, i.e. to uh, eject or accept an extra electron and change its charge. And really it was... Um, yeah, into the first experiment we'll talk about. Really super cool experiment by a very famous Ernest Rutherford who used uh, uh, in the early 1900s, and it, it took several years, there were many experiments, but it came to the conclusion that using incredibly thin films of gold, so gold is the most ductile metal. So you can think of it as you can you can roll it out incredibly thin, like with a rolling pin. You just keep rolling it. So you know your pastry will crack at some point. But gold, you can keep rolling, keep rolling, keep rolling. You could actually roll it to be a few atoms thick. It's pretty incredible. If you try it out with other things, they will crack. But gold doesn't. It's the most ductile metal we know. And what he did in the early 1900s was he fired alpha particles. So alpha particles are just helium nuclei. So uh, an alpha particle has got two protons and two neutrons. We'll talk what they are more soon. He fired alpha particles at these gold, really thin gold film. And most of the alpha particles just went straight through. And when you say most, literally like 99.999, you know, almost all of them. But some of them bounce back. Some of them bounce straight back. Most of them would have been deflected. You know, some started to be deflected, right? So instead of just going straight through, you know, they may have been deflected by 30 degrees or 90 degrees, or indeed some came straight back at him, but a very, very tiny number. So that's like, someone told me once, that's like firing a missile at a piece of tissue paper and the missile hitting the tissue paper, turning around and coming back at you. Kind of nuts, but that's exactly what it was. And he realized that the nucleus must be absolutely tiny. So uh, we, we got to go down another... Um, roughly four magnitudes to about 10 to the minus 14 meters, which is 10 femtometers to get to the size 
of, uh, well, that would be a large nucleus like uranium. Small nucleus will be about one femtometer. Uh, so hydrogen, which is, of course, just a proton. And um, that means, so if you, the analogy used is like if you think of a big Olympic stadium where the athletics is. Uh, if that's your atom, the nucleus is about the size of a pea in the middle of the uh, field. And that's it. That you, obviously, that, that's the relative sizes. Nucleus are really tiny, but it's a beautiful experiment. And as it turns out, an experiment which gave inspiration for how we learnt about even deeper secrets many decades later. So now we're at about a femtometer, the size of a nucleus. Okay, we're very much now in the regime of quantum mechanics. Um, and I can go many different ways now, but let's keep going to kind of smaller stuff. So below a femtometer, it starts to get um, a little weird. So a nucleus of an atom is made of protons and neutrons, unless the atom is hydrogen, in which case it's one proton. Um, but all other atoms have at least one neutron in. And most atoms have a similar number of neutrons to protons, roughly. And you get different isotopes of an atom based upon how many neutrons it has. You've probably heard about uranium-235, uranium-238, probably the most famous, uh, as, as is hydrogen, deuterium and tritium, which are the three forms of hydrogen. In fact, when you drink water every day, I can't remember exactly, but it's something like 0.1 or 0.2%, it's something like that, is deuterium. Tritium is very rare, but you can drink deuterium. In fact, you could drink 100% deuterium or tritium and in, in water. Obviously, water is H2O, and you'll be fine. It's absolutely non-toxic. It's just water. Um, because it's, we're talking about a nuclear difference. It doesn't make any difference to the, uh, to the chemistry, which is really based upon the electrons. There's still one electron on the outside for hydrogen. Um, and so, really... Having different numbers of neutrons only matters when you get to nuclear chemistry, i.e. splitting of atoms and nuclear bombs and all this good stuff. Well, not good stuff. Horrendous stuff, but maybe good stuff, because only two have ever been dropped, and touch wood, none, none ever will again. Um, but of course people started to ask um, in the... Um, well, I mean, you know, amazingly... So, so Rutherford did that in the early 1900s, and then, therefore, he showed that um, the, so the atom was mainly empty space, had a nucleus. Um, he had not discovered the neutron, it was not known, until Chadwick uh, did an experiment in the uh, 1930s. So incredibly, after Einstein had a, all his great ideas, after quantum mechanics was born, at the time of this, they didn't even know neutrons existed, did an incredibly clever experiment... Um, um, and showed that there must be, uh, basically he could force neutral particles out of the uh, nucleus, not just positively charged ones. And this is how, and they, um, and, but it's really hard to detect neutral particles um, because the way you detect particles often is with a magnetic field and they curve and you use like a bubble chamber or something like that and you can, uh, by the tracks they leave, you know the electromagnetic field strength and you can work out the mass based on the curvature. That's how particle accelerators work in a very, very, very simple way in the detectors. Um, anyone here that works at CERN is probably now cringing because it's a little bit more complex than that these days. Um, but at school, a lot of us would have actually done very simple experiments with um, simple bubble chamber with smoke in. It's really 
not a difference in, in principle. So the neutron was discovered in the 1930s. And of course, people started to say, well, what are neutrons and protons made of and electrons? Like, are these things, is that it? And, you know, the concept of atoms, it goes back to, well, atoms and um, the, the actual um, name goes back to uh, Greek times. Um, and it's like an indivisible hard unit, like a billiard ball was what people maybe thought. But again, really, um, you know, people have asked for a long time about what, what, what really are things made of. Um, but it's only really in the 20th century that, you know, we made this um, you know, real progress. And of course, um, Medvedev put together the famous periodic table and explained, you know, all the chemistry of stuff. But that was in the late 19th century. Um, so people started asking, well, what are um, protons, neutrons, electrons made of? Um, and that, that was what we thought the particles were in like the 30s, in effect. Um, and it took until about the late 60s and where people did exactly the same experiment that Rutherford had done with gold, um, but they um, changed it um, uh, slightly um, and called what's called deep inelastic scattering experiment. I think it was 1968. It was around then, around 1970, where they actually discovered that protons and neutrons were made of a point-like part, well, three point-like particles inside a proton and a neutron called a quark, which Murray Gell-Mann came up with the name for, having read it in a book, nothing to do with physics, but like a storybook, who's a cool name. Um, and they did the same thing. They fired um, uh, basically a beam of, well, I assume it was electrons um, at uh, nuclei. Um, and then just like, if you remember the, the gold experiment, the alpha particles, some of them came back. They had exactly the same thing. It's a little more complex that you, it looked like with the scattering angles you got, you could resolve that there were three point light particles within the neutron and the proton. These are called quarks and they're really crazy. Why are they crazy? Because quarks have a non-integer charge. You say, well, that's not possible. Um, we In physics, you're taught that everything has some form of multiple of the charge of the electron. From memory, that's one point six times 10 to the minus 19 coulombs. That seems to be ingrained in my mind from 20 years ago. Um, coulomb is a measure of charge. You can't have 1.5 times 10 to the minus 16 coulombs. It's not possible. You can only have 1.6 or 3.2 or 4.8. It's in effect quantized. And this is all related to quantum mechanics, the word quanta. We'll talk about more, that more in a sec. But actually the uh, up and down, so the, the first two quarks that were discovered that are in neutrons and protons are called the up quark and the down quark. Um, as I said, in the late 60s and 70s. Uh, and they have a charge of plus two thirds and plus one third. And they also have antiparticles that will have charges of minus two thirds and minus one third. And this is uh, very important for the two uh, the baryons and fermions, two different types of um, particle. We won't go too much into that. Um, but uh, so a proton and a neutron, and I never remember which way round, is either up, up, down, or down, up, down. Right, that, that's how they are. And if you work it out, that means you've got, um, if you have plus two thirds, plus two thirds, minus thirds, you have a charge of one, and it's a proton. If you have plus two thirds, minus a third, minus a third, you have a charge of zero, neutron. Okay, very good. 
So you'd say, well, okay, well, can't I just like pick out a quark? Let's get a quark. And then we have a um, partial charge. Well, unfortunately, you can't. And this is one of the really cool things. And the way I like to think of it is um, it's like a, a, a necklace of pearls. Um, but instead of um, like a string that the pearls are on, it's on like an elastic band. The pearls are the quarks. If you pull the necklace, the elastic band, you're going to pull apart, right, the pearls. And what happens is, instead of breaking when you keep pulling it, which obviously, if you pull an elastic band, it will break eventually. What happens is you create another pearl. And it will never break. You just keep creating more quarks. So you can't have a quark on its own. You cannot combine one quark. It's just not possible. We've tried, you can't. Um, and, um, and, and of course, this is, which we can talk more another time about, this is all about E equals MC squared. At the end of the day, energy and mass are equivalent. Probably the most famous equation ever. Um, it's actually not quite the equation, but it doesn't matter. Um, and if we're being really anal about it, uh, but that's obviously one of Einstein's most famous things. So you can't confine quarks, um, and we think in effect, we think they're point-like. They don't really have a size. Now, this is where it all gets really weird because, of course, then people ask, what are quarks made of? And, by the way, there are six quarks, so up and down we've talked about. And then what happened was people thought, oh, well, there's probably a third because we there's a what happened in the 60s was they started having the big uh, cyclotrons, i.e., big ones, not as big as you know the Large Hadron Collider now, which is like 25 mile diameter or whatever it is, or circumference. But they had um, proper big ones that could, um, you know, of many meters uh, diameter or, or more that could actually get pretty high energies. And they created all these new particles like pions and kaons and various, pi, yeah, well, pi mesons, pions. And there was literally every week new particles were discovered. And these particles lasted longer than they should have done based upon the theories about... Um, because what happens is particles come, they exist for a very short period of time, maybe like a femtosecond or a picosecond, and then they decay into other things. And then maybe those things decay, and that's what you're detecting in the particle detector. You're not seeing the particles directly. Generally, you're seeing the decay, of, and then you're kind of trying to reverse time to work out what you had originally. And so... Basically, it's really simple. Physicists are great with naming sometimes. It was a bit strange that these particles lasted longer than they should have done. So they said, well, there must be probably a strange quark that gives them this kind of strange property that allows them to last longer. And yes, they actually did then find the strange quark. Um, being physics, it has to be paired with something. It's very rare. You have something, you had the up and the bottom, uh, up and the down, sorry. So Freudian slip, we'll talk about bottom in a bit. Um, and then so you had the strange quark which was discovered um, along with the uh, its kind of partner the charm quark um, and for whatever reason which we don't really know in physics lots of things like to come in threes or sets of three so you have the electron the muon and the tau particle and their antiparticles so you have three and the mirror kind of antiparticle it's not really a mirror but right so people postulated well maybe there's a heavier quarks and they thought there should be 
two more quarks and actually um, the bottom quark was discovered in the 80s and um, I think it was 1995 the top quark was discovered at uh, Fermi Lab I would think um, which was um, the largest um, collider at the time because the Large Hadron Collider hadn't well wasn't didn't exist and um, and that's it there are six quarks we actually know there can't be any more there's a little bit more. Not everyone will notice listening. Um, there's a reason, and it, it's really the most powerful reason is probably um, when we discovered the Higgs boson, which is the particle that, and the field, the Higgs field, really what matters is fields, which we'll talk about, not particles, which gives particles uh, mass and um, gives all of us mass and everything mass. And if there were more quarks, then we would have a different rate of generating Higgs bosons in the experiments that found the Higgs. So we actually know there cannot be any more quarks. And this whole, this sounds like crazy that we can know these things, but the theories behind this are so accurate. It's absolutely insane, but they're so accurate at the length scales we're talking about, you know, i.e. nuclear scales, a little smaller than that, down to from um, femtometers, 10 to minus 15 to picometers or picometers which is 10 to the minus 18 but what are these things made of so are quarks uh, and by the way quarks are held together that elastic band in the necklace i told you they're called gluons that's the elastic band so what happens is if you're stretching them yeah you're, you're, you're basically um stretching the gluons out and then in effect you're that's more and more energy and then you're creating another quark um and um this is now at the point where experiments so experiments have proven everything to this point and then amazingly we get to skip pretty much everything from 10 to minus 18 all the way down to 10 to minus 34 meters which is called the Planck length which may or may not be the smallest possible length scale we don't know it is possible that it is meaningless in the space-time we live in to say that something is 10 to the minus 35 meters across. That we could live in a world where it's almost like a grid or a mesh. Look up quantum loop gravity if you want to look more into this. Where, and, and, and the scale we're talking about is 10 to the minus 34. That may be the way into extra dimensions if you start talking about super, uh, yeah, string theory and superstring theory, which is a different episode. We're not getting into it here. But there's not really much going on until you get to that. And the problem is, is for us to do, so this explains why we can't do experiments. We can do experiments at the kind of femtometer and picometer length scale. That just means then you have an energy of you know, basically in giga electron volts or uh, thousands of giga electron volts, which is TeV. I think the LHC is up to about 13 TeV. Its successor, if it gets funded, will be about 75 TeV, I think. Um, but um, but it's literally ten to the power of well, it's 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 that many zeros again. If you go from zero, sorry, one to ten to the minus seventeen, then you go another ten to the minus seventeen. All right, you get to ten to the minus thirty-four. So it's that many. It's an extra seventeen zeros. <laughs> right. So we're nowhere near um doing experiments that can directly measure whether this Planck length is correct or not in terms of being the smallest possible distance. So of course people are trying to work out um, cleverer ways, you know, 
scientists are great at working out indirect ways to give evidence to things. But we can't just do the beautiful experiment Rutherford did that was then done with inside protons and neutrons. We can't do that for inside quarks. We, we just are nowhere near that. Um, okay, so that's kind of length scales, which is, I think, important as a bit of a primer. Um, so quantum mechanics, um, look, again, entire, you can pretty much do degrees in this. I mean, you can specialize so much in it in your physics degree that, you know, it's a gigantic field. So we're not going to cover anything like everything. We will miss some things. But this is what came out of the top of my head. So you can argue where it all started, but probably Planck uh, in uh, Max Planck, 1900 or so, was looking at, uh, there was always this mystery on black body radiation when you heat something up and it releases radiation. And basically the, the curve it had, they couldn't work it out, it didn't seem right. And, um, and he proposed and showed that you basically can have quanta of energy being released by a body. So, i.e. it releases packets at a time. It's not like a continuous smooth thing. So that word quanta is exactly, again, it's popped up again. Um, actually, you know, it's exactly the same. Well, well, we'll come to it in a sec with Einstein. So that was around 1900. And then we had Einstein in 1905, who had what is quite definitely, well, it's called the Annus Mirabilis. He did four papers. A lot of people say he did three papers, but he actually did four. Um, one is less well known, which were all absolutely groundbreaking and changed physics forever. So the least well known is his one on Brownian motion, which helped to explain um, basically the random movement of um, uh, atoms. And so, for example, you're taught this at school. You look at smoke particles and they're being jigged around. And why is that happening? And it's because it's the Brownian motion of all the smaller things. That's not that interesting for quantum mechanics for us right now. That was one. He did the paper that, in effect, started quantum mechanics along with Max Planck, which was the photoelectric effect. This was uh, where you bombard, um, if you bombard a surface with photons, then you can eject electrons from the material but what he showed was you electrons will leave them only at certain wavelengths. And E, energy, equals HF. So um, for photons, right, you're talking about, um, well, it's the stuff traveling at the speed of light. But So the wavelength is proportional to energy. Sorry, frequency is proportional to energy. Wavelength is proportional to 1 over energy. So um, what he showed was that so photons can come in, they hit the surface, they interact with the top of the material and they can dislodge electrons out, but the electrons leave at certain energy, not continuous energies, but discrete. So you had this idea of quanta again. Um, it's also the reason why electrons don't fall into the atom. It's a very good question that a six-year-old could ask. Oh, daddy, if, if the nucleus is positive and the electrons are negative, and I know, because I played with my magnets, that negative goes to positive. Why doesn't the electrons hit the nucleus? And that's the point is that the electrons are in these orbits, uh, which in effect are energy levels. And for them to move to it, they can't just move a little bit closer to the atom. They have to move all the way to the next energy level. Uh, and that requires a, um, and basically a, well, 
a, a generally a large amount of energy to dislodge them. And so they're actually stable. Well, we know atoms are stable, else we wouldn't exist. Another paper he did, I whipped out special relativity as well. Um, I mean, this is also building on um, stuff that, um, well, actually, other people had come to sort of similar-ish conclusions, but this is talking about what happens um, when you start traveling close to the speed of light, uh, time dilation, length contraction, these types of things. Uh, special relativity is really very different to general relativity in terms of um, the scope of it. It actually took him 10 years to get to general relativity. It was 1915. Um, but special relativity was really the where relativity came. Um, and is accessible if you have... Um, if you understand, you don't need to have done university level maths or physics. You can understand special relativity and the equations behind it. There are actually YouTube videos where people derive, in fact, there is actually one YouTube video where he derives the general theory of relativity. Um, but you start with special and it is understandable. And then he came out of E equals MC squared as well in the same year. This is called energy mass equivalence. So energy equals mass times speed of light squared. As you may know in physics, people like to just say the speed of light is one because it is anything you want it to be. That's not a flippant comment. It depends on the units. So if someone says, what's the speed of light? Well, I can say it's one. If my units are the speed of light, I could say it's 300 million meters per second. Sure. I could say it's 187,000 miles per second. I don't have to use seconds. I could use minutes, right? So the point is, in physics, they often set it to one. It just makes things easier. And um, as long as you therefore have the units correct elsewhere, it's not a problem. So energy and mass are equivalent. So all in one year, pretty crazy. He only got one Nobel Prize for all this, which is totally insane. Uh, in 1921, he got given the Nobel Prize for the photoelectric effect. Um, it's generally considered he was because he was Jewish and at the time unfortunately there was uh, a lot of racism maybe anti-semitism in the Nobel um, um, committee I mean it's obviously completely insane that he did not get a Nobel Prize for special relativity well then general relativity which was 1915 which was proven in 1919 by the way and you have to have a theory proven to get the Nobel Prize it was proven by Arthur Eddington in 1919 by looking at how We'll do a separate um, podcast on general relativity because it, it's, it's getting much more... I don't want to go into space-time here. We're not going into relativity. Anyway, it was a massive injustice. He only got one Nobel Prize. He should have got at least probably three. <laughs> um, anyways. So that was... 1905 was really the start of... Along with Planck in 1900, quantum mechanics... Uh, look, you, did, you, then, you then did have a war. Um, this does affect things. And really then the 20s was when quantum mechanics started to come together. People like uh, Werner Heisenberg with his uncertainty principle. So this is, again, the, the math doesn't really matter. What matters is you can't know the position and the momentum of anything <clears throat> to an arbitrary preciseness. And when I say momentum, just think of speed. So you can't know where something is and how fast it's moving to an exact precision. The more accurate you know where it is, the less accurate you know its speed. That's 
its momentum. <clears throat> and the opposite. The more accurate you know its momentum or speed, the less accurate you know where it is. Um, and this is really, really important in everything in quantum mechanics. You, so you, it, the world's a bit fuzzy. By the way, Einstein didn't like that. But it is true. We had, um, you know, a very important thing was the whole concept of wave-particle duality. This um, goes back to actually 1801, I think. Um, a guy called Thomas Young did a thing called Young's Slits Experiments. Um, many people listening will have done this experiment at school. Uh, this is where you show that um, light has wave-like properties. And so you <clears throat> basically have two slits, which are pretty, uh, maybe a centimeter apart, but they're very f fine slits and you shine light through um, of one wavelength, so monochromatic light. Um, and on the other side, you get an interference pattern showing that the, um, that basically, yeah, the light is actually a wave and actually it's interfering like ripples on a lake would if you're two people are skimming stones at the same time. Um, now, this was... Um, 1801 this is 100 years prior it actually took until around 1910 1909 something like that a guy called taylor did it with uh basically with one um photon at a time um, and it was done with electrons instead in the one electron at a time in the um i think the 60s with the same uh, but this is where it gets more interesting. So it was one, Taylor had one photon at a time, so he had such low intensity. And so instead of firing like a bright light through the slits, he literally, it was so dim that you had one photon at a time going through the slits. And what was incredible, this is doable. And what's amazing is if it's one photon at a time, well, it can't be interfering with another photon. But you still see the interference pattern. Except if you cover one of the slits up, you see uh, a different pattern. But if, so basically, the, it looks like the photon is going through both slits. So it's sort of like going along, splitting itself in half, going through both, <laughs> interfering on the other side, combining, like, this is crazy, right? But it's what happens. Um, so the beauty of the experiment was being able to dim the intensity right down to one photon at a time. Wonderful experiment. Um, as I said, this was repeated with electrons in, I think, the 60s, which show the same um, wave-like properties. By the way, ultimately things are waves, by the way, not particles. Some people don't like that, but I think it's pretty clear. We'll talk about quantum field theory a bit later. Um, and then you had stuff like uh, you know, Erwin Schrodinger. Um, you've probably heard of Schrodinger's cat, the famous dead and alive cat. It's a little bit of a red herring. Um, but it does illustrate this kind of craziness that um, you can't know what's happening in a system, in a quantum system, unless you look and observe. But the entire act of observing can change the system. So it's a bit like um, if you think of, um, you know, if, if you think of a, a large billiard ball or snooker ball or whatever, you know, if like a, if you throw a pea at it, right, it, it, it's not going to move it because the billiard balls like weighs like you know a thousand times more. It's not really going to move it. But when you're talking about such small things, just the act of looking at something, which if you're looking with light means photons are hitting it, they start and they they actually will interact with the system. 
and can change measurements. Um, so um, really, um, Schrodinger, yeah, well, the most, I guess the most famous thing generally tends to be what is named after these people. So the Schrodinger equation, this is really uh, what shows how what's called a wave function evolves over time. Now, wave function is in effect a way of looking at, if you want to get a bit more technical, if you can square the wave function, you can get a probability distribution about where a particle can be. Uh, in effect, wave functions go everywhere across the universe, but it's incredibly likely that I am incredibly likely to be here where I am in my office recording this podcast. But yes, it is sort of plausible, but it is true to say that part of me is in the room next door too, uh, but it, but not really. And also things interacting with me all the time, which are forcing the wave function to basically kind of crystallize out and say where I am, and I'm here. Sort of a bad analogy, but yeah. Um, yeah it, th the point is, is when you measure, you force a quantum system to have values. And your measurement may have also altered things. Slide aside here, what's by the way cool about quantum computers is that they'll be able to um, simulate quantum systems in a quantum way because the, the system itself, the computer itself is quantum mechanical. What you have to do with classical computers if you want to simulate quantum behavior is you have to put equations in. Um, and it, it's not, at, it, it's bashing out the equations. It's not actually doing the, not actually evolving in a quantum-like manner, which a quantum computer could. Bearing in mind a 400 qubit quantum computer can theoretically um, have, um, well, it could in effect store more information than uh, the entire universe if the entire universe had the information density of, um, well, the maximum information density possible, which is based, well, we'll talk about that when we talk about black holes. Um, okay, <clears throat> so. Then we started having, like, there's other people that are very famous here, you know, people like Niels Bohr, uh, Max, uh, you had Born, and lots of other people. Um, you had different interpretations of quantum mechanics, you had the Copenhagen interpretation, the many worlds interpretation. Um, the many worlds one is people either love or hate. It is in effect saying every time there's a decision, or, or, yeah, or yeah, do I go left or right? Well, I don't need to decide the universe splits and goes left and right. So there's in effect a pseudo infinite number of universes all kind of like a, a from the trunk of a tree going into branches, into twigs, into tiny, tiny things going on forever in effect ever. Again, some people think this is just incredibly lazy way of getting, <laughs> getting around many problems. Other people are like, well, yeah, that's the answer. So again, you could do an entire podcast on interpretations of, um, um, quantum mechanics and so really quantum mechanics it, it's something to be scared of it, it just shows that things work at a very small scale on a probabilistic level we've proven it so many different ways it's crazy the fact you're listening to this on a computer computers are absolutely totally utterly dependent on quantum mechanics in the transistors um, and like yeah so we know it works it has predictions that have been experimentally verified to incredible accuracy. In fact, you know, the most accurate experimental and theoretical uh, matches in all of science, I'd say, are in this field. You're talking about 
12 plus decimal places where theory matches experiment is crazy. Yet there are some things we don't even know why, you know, it's, so, you know, it, it's kind of amazing that, you know, everything I'm describing is part of what's called the standard model. We won't get into all of it, but like um, with the different types of particles, how they interact. And it's, it's this, you know, incredibly accurate model, but we also know it can't, well, pretty much know it can't be the final answer. Um, because there are various dimensionless, for example, constants in it, like fine structure constant and other things. Which, by the way, if we ever spoke of aliens, we should actually just say the number 1 over 137. And if they're smart, they'll nod their head. And we'll be like, kind of, yeah, that's cool, bro. We agree. It's a dimensionless constant. Google 1 over 137. I'm pretty certain you can find out a lot about it. It's very cool. Um, so what then happened? We're not going to get into all the nuances of quantum, but let's start talking about the different forces that started to again, like, you know, well, what some had appeared for a while, but you know, in the mid 19th century, you had uh, James Clerk Maxwell show that electromagnetism was, so basically the, so charge, electrostatic force, and magnetism. Electricity and magnetism are the same thing, basically. Which was not obvious. But actually, if you think about how do we generate electricity? Well, if you ignore solar panels, all power stations do the same thing. They rotate a magnet inside a coil. Um, and um, that's how you generate electricity. <laughs> it's literally how every power station works. Whether it's a nuclear one, or a gas, or a coal, or oil-powered, or whatever. The exception is solar. Um, well, when I'm talking about mass production, let's not talk about fuel cells and stuff. So in the mid-19th century, he, he in effect unified electricity of magnetism, right? That's the first unification. Then the second unification, well, first of all, we have to understand what are the fundamental forces. Well, we think there are four. There was a flurry of activity three months ago where potentially there's a fifth called, they're called X-17, um, just because the X is, I think, is unknown, and the 17 is 17 um, MeV, mega electron volts, which was where the spike was seen in two separate experiments. Um, actually, a very low energy. Um, whether this is a fifth fundamental force, we, we just don't know yet. Um, but it's a very interesting. What's super cool about it is you don't need the LHC to look at this. Like, 17 mega electron volts? That's like nothing in terms of particle accelerators. Like, anyone with any decent particle accelerator can look at that energy. So that's really cool. You know, you spend 10 billion euros on the LHC and however much the successor would cost. And yeah, yes, it found the Higgs, which was important. Um, as we'll talk, it didn't find the supersymmetry stuff. But, um, you know, in effect, in a backyard thing, you can also find new stuff, which is awesome about physics. So, yeah, so Maxwell, so we had electricity magnetism, force number one. Force number two is called uh, the weak force. Uh, so this is the force that governs um, the radioactive decay of atoms. So atoms can decay in different ways. So you can have alpha decay um, where you're, you're losing an alpha particle, which we said earlier was two protons and two neutrons. Uh, you can have beta decay, gamma decay. And um, these decays are governed by what's called the weak force. So by definition, you can tell, right, this has got to be to do with the nucleus. So all of a sudden, we've got to a much, much smaller length scale. 
So if I'm next to you, you know, we don't feel any weak force. <laughs> you know, there's no weak force interaction, even if we are um, very, very close to each other. It's just none. It, you know, you're talking about inside an atom. Uh, the third force, uh, fundamental force, is called the strong force. This is basically gluons, which keep the quarks together inside of neutrons and protons and other particles. Um, because again, if you have, as I said, if you have plus two thirds, you know, or and, uh, mi minus a third charges, like, well, something has to stop these things coming together or being pushed apart, um, and it's called the strong force. And the fourth force is gravity which we do, of course, experience. But again, if you're standing next to me, it's not like we feel like we're attracted to each other. Well, maybe everyone's attracted to me. Of course you're attracted to me, I'm joking. But, um, you know, it, but of course we feel it every day in the fact that we're, we're on the earth. <laughs> we're obviously not flying away, floating away. Um, and so what started to happen with Maxwell was unification of these forces. So he unified electricity and magnetism. Then the next force we was unified into this was the weak force. So this is called the electroweak unification. And this happened at about um, 250 giga electron volts. This is roughly the equivalent of a temperature of 10 to the 15 Kelvin. So a billion, million, a million billion Kelvin. Um, and um, this was done in the uh, 60s, theoretically, by Stephen Weinberg, uh, Salam, and... Abdul Salam and uh, Sheldon Glashow. Yeah, uh, all three won the Nobel Prize. Remember, Nobel Prize is given to three people maximum, so I'm sure other people were working on it. Uh, it was also proven in the 70s and the 80s with various different experiments, which are really technical in nature. Uh, but it's proven Electroweak worked. And it, it's not the world's best unification. Uh, the next one I'll talk about is probably uh, better. Um, but yeah, it shows that they're in effect the same force at very... Uh, very high energy. Now, in the 70s, along came quantum chromodynamics. So this was Frank Wilczek, uh, Gross, um, early 70s. And there was another guy, I think it's Pulitzer, Pulitzer, something like that, who came up with it in the same year, but didn't publish first. But he still got the Nobel Prize. The three of them did. So I guess he was lucky that it was We'll check and gross for just two, because if it was three of them, then this guy wouldn't have gotten over a prize. Um, but he came up with it independently, completely independently, came up with basically the same theory. Pretty amazing. Um, but, and also, well, it, it works. It's, it's ridiculous in its uh, predictive power. This is where you're getting things predicted to 12 decimal places. And by the way, as experiments are getting better, that might become 16 decimal places. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. Um, so this is called quantum chromodynamics. Uh, now, bearing in mind, I just said we were at 250 or so giga electron volts for the electro weak. Well, to get the strong force unified, you're at 10 to the 15 giga electron volts. So, you know, 250 giga electron volts is basically roughly 10 to the two, right? So we're 13 orders of magnitude, higher energy. Yeah, so um, this isn't so easy to prove. <laughs> and we, um, there are, it's like, we, to prove the unification. Um, it also requires this kind of weird thing called supersymmetry, which is, um, was born from a lot of very beautiful mathematics, um, 
which basically says there's a supersymmetric. So whilst you have a uh, an electron and a positron, so an electron is negative charge, a positron is positive charge. So an electron is minus 1.6 10 to the minus 19 coulombs, a positron is plus 1.6 10 to the minus 19 coulombs. They have exactly the same mass. Everything else is the same. Uh, basically, they, they don't have negative mass. That, that some people think that the antiparticles have a negative mass. That's not true. But if an electron and a positron come together, they annihilate into pure energy, E equals mc squared. And just have, uh, basically, um, well, I assume that would just be basically photons, energy. But with supersymmetry, you'd also have, instead of an electron, you'd have a selectron, right? Uh, and a spositron. Um, instead of quarks, you have squarks. Uh, yeah, instead of the Higgs particle, you have a Higgsino. Um, this was the second thing the LHC in Geneva was meant to discover. Um, it discovered the Higgs boson in 2012. Don't worry about the word boson. The Higgs particle just is the particle that, in effect, gives everything mass. And we'll talk in a second why. Um, but the LHC never did discover these other supersymmetric particles. And maybe they're just heavier um, than the LHC can probe. Uh, we don't know. Uh, that is absolutely, as of right now, a large issue in physics because if supersymmetry isn't correct, um, we don't unify the strong force so neatly. Um, but quantum chromodynamics, in terms of how that works, in terms of the interactions of the different types of quarks, the colours of quarks, that, that's sound. It's just a case of does everything come together into one force? Well, maybe it doesn't. But for whatever reason, humans love to think that all these things can be unified. And we haven't even started to talk about gravity, to get gravity into that, i.e. the grand unified theories. Um, we will do an entire thing on uh, string theory, which, again, the spoiler is, uh, yet we do not know. There are many people that think string theory is the answer. There are a lot of people who don't. And a lot of time has now passed. Um, and progress is not being as rapid as it could have been, potentially. So maybe it's wrong. We don't know. So the last thing I want to talk about briefly is this whole wave-particle duality thing, I think is a bit of a red herring. Because, yes, light and particles, in fact, all particles can exhibit wave-like and particle-like behaviours. But really, they're waves. Sorry, but they are. Uh, quantum field theory, or QFT, is what, again, one of the most um, ridiculously accurate theories ever produced, um, is all about how, um, so what's a field, right? A field is really simple. It's just every point in space. A field is just a number. So if it's the electric field, it's basically the charge at that point in space. Um, if it's uh, the, the Higgs field, so which gives mass, it would be the mass at that point in space. So, in effect, I'm simplifying it a bit. But, um, and so, what we're saying is every point in space has a, uh, the, a field. So, as a, a value for that field. So, whether it's the electric or the... So, the up quark, there's an up quark field, a down quark field. And if you imagine it like being a um, sheet of rubber, right? And if it's just flat, there's no particle there. But if it gets excited, and there's an excitation, or indeed a wave that's traveling through it, um, that's when you, can, in, in the electric field, you would get an electron. And the electron moves as a vibration in the field. 
the wave propagates through it. But really what QFT is about is how these fields interact. So the simplest to probably talk about is, um, so the uh, basically you have electrons. So when an electron comes towards another electron, what's really happening is you've got a ripple in the electron field uh, that's coming to another ripple in the field. They're actually interacting via with that field interacting with uh, basically the photon field. And what happens is what's called a virtual photon is passed between the two electrons. And it's the interaction of these two fields that actually governs the interaction of the two electrons. And that virtual photon, in effect, is a repulsive force between the two electrons that have the same charge and they repel each other. And that's how they interact. So Richard Feynman did a huge amount of work on this uh, and, and talked about it. A, great, a lot of his lectures are on YouTube. So, you know, Richard Feynman is one of the best communicators of science. Um, and um, so if anyone ever asks if it's fields or particles and they're trying to be clever because they're like, well, they both exist. It's like, yeah, no, it's fields. Fields are the more fundamental thing. There's like really no debate on that. Um, and um, particles are just excitations of those fields. So, yeah, I'm going to stop there. We've covered a lot. <laughs> um, so we've covered all sorts about length scales. And again, like, we can talk more another time about going to the 10 to the minus 34 length scales, potential extra dimensions uh, in, uh, to do with uh, string theory and superstring theory and all that good stuff, um, and quantum loop gravity, which is the other kind of kind of contender theory for grand unified theory, uh, and they both, both might be wrong, of course. Um, we talked about quantum mechanics at a high level. This is about probabilities, you know, it's fuzzy, things are not precise, but if you do experiments with large enough numbers of things happening, it will be precise. Um, you know, as much as Einstein hated a lot of quantum mechanics, he, he's the father of it, really, along with Max Planck. Um, if anyone knows of a year, like 1905 Einstein, where a scientist did so much on his or her own, please let me know. Maybe it's happened in another field. Um, and then we started, you know, we covered the forces. Uh, so electromagnetic, weak, strong, gravity, not so much on gravity. We'll talk about that another time. We'll get into black holes. That'll be cool. Then you're going to start hearing about what Stephen Hawking really brought to the world. And it was some amazing, incredible things. He was a very famous scientist, but most people don't really know what he did. Well, we did black hole stuff. Um, but he actually was really the first person to bring together quantum mechanics and gravity in a, um, uh, in a, in a place where relativistic effects are incredibly important and showed that quant this is compatible with quantum mechanics uh, and actually can make predictions, which unfortunately we can't. So whilst we just took a picture of a black hole, we can't possibly see the Hawking radiation from it. It's about one millionth of a degree. And the background radiation of the universe is, what, three or four degrees Kelvin? It's just not going to happen. Um, not for a long time. Yeah, and so we talked through the different unifications, um, supersymmetry, um, and a little bit on quantum field theory, which, um, is, again, one of the most elegant, mathematically brilliant, very consistent, wonderful theories. Um, and really fields are what matters, not particles. Um, so let's leave it at that. Uh, I think next time we'll do more, 
I'm not sure if we'll do relativity in more depth or maybe string theory um, or even maybe quantum, actually black holes. and that, That's a good bridge between the two. So maybe we need to do relativity and then we can move to black holes. Anyway, as always, any feedback, let me know. It's been fun doing this one um, and uh, I'll speak to you soon.